Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and a planet. My name is Kevin Folta. I'm a professor at the University of Florida, one of your top 10 public universities. Wahoo. Uh, today, it's a little bit different. We're not going to talk about biotechnology per se, but we're going to talk about food technology. And more appropriately, really, the uh, manifestations of food technology when we talk about obesity and other chronic health issues associated with consumption of maybe the wrong kind of calories or too many calories. We'll talk about that with with um, our guest today. So our guest is uh, Anthony Warner, and you may know Anthony from uh, his blog, The Angry Chef, uh, which he's been doing since 2016. But he's written two books, um, at least, two that I'm aware of. And I adored the first one, and I was very fortunate to read the second. And uh, he's with us today. So welcome to the podcast, Anthony. Hello, hello, how are you? <laughs> yeah, nice to talk to you finally. We've uh, communicated on uh, Twitter and social media for a few years now, and nice to have you on the podcast. Yeah, no, it's good. It's been something we've been trying to get together for a while, isn't it? And we've finally done it. Yeah, finally made it happen. Now, I know that what makes your work particularly compelling to me is because you have a background in science. So where did you train and what did you study? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I studied biochemistry um, at Manchester University. Um, but, you know, uh, to, to, you know I, was, um, I sort of graduated in um, the uh, mid-1990s, uh, and I didn't necessarily go into um, follow a field um, <laughs> sort of um, connected to that degree. I became a chef straight after university and worked for many years in restaurants and hotels, and then um, subsequently worked for the food manufacturing industry, which meant I engaged a lot more with dietitians and, and nutritionists and, and, and sort of um, re-engaged with, with the science a little bit. And what kind of stuff did you do with the industry? Like what was that kind of – what was that job? Um, I was a development chef, so a creative development chef, making new products for the food industry. So mostly for like um, grocery products like uh, pasta sauces and things like that. So I'd, I'd create the recipes and do some of the creativity and some of the innovation and um, sort of work on bringing new products to market in the, in the UK grocery market. Did you find that your experience as a biochemist gave you a certain understanding of food and food chemistry that really made you a much better chef? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's certainly, you know, uh, the big big challenges in the food industry are often sort of diet and health and, and, and nutrition and understanding nutrition science. And, and obviously a, a background in, in food in science helped sort of me um, have some sort of credibility in the sort of uh, conversations I was having to have about nutrition and diet and health. And also, you know, with the um, the fact that this is industrially produced food, often there is there are questions of um scientific questions that need addressing in the in the you know, in the cooking 
I guess the other really um, important part of this conversation before we dive into the new book is maybe touching on the first book, which I thought was brilliant. Mm -hmm. And it really was much more of an extension of your blog and your persona of, you know, uh, here's all of the misinformation that's out there. Let's take it apart. And just so the audience can become a little more familiar with who you are and what you've done, if, if they don't know your work, can you give us a little synopsis about, you know, what the first book was about and what your, um, and, and maybe an example or two of some of the debunking that you did inside that text? Yeah, I mean, the first book was very much um, based, as you said, on my blog, which was uh, really sort of debunking bad science in the world of food. It was kind of a reaction to a lot of the um, often internet-based um, pseudoscience that I, I was seeing sort of coming along and like various fad diets, which um, you know, were gaining in popularity and certain gaining sort of popularity in certain little little areas of the internet. So things like you know, clean eating diets, things like the paleo diet, things like, you know, the alkaline Nash diet and all these ridiculous pseudoscientific dietary fads, which, you know, weren't really being challenged. And I felt there was a need to sort of challenge them online. And then that became very popular very quickly because I think there was a big appetite for, for people um, in, to sort of fight back against this very sort of guilt-inducing, um, almost anti-food um, sort of dietary debunking, persuading people to go on very restrictive diets, which I felt was very harmful. And then the book was kind of an extension of that. But, but what you know, what the book covers various fad diets, but it also you know, my fascination is why we're so susceptible to this stuff, especially when it comes to food, which I imagine is something you're interested in as well. When it comes to food, it's incredibly emotive and it's incredible. There's an incredible amount of pseudoscience uh, um, connected to that area. And I was fascinated why that was the case and really getting to the heart of why we're so inclined to false beliefs when it comes to food. And that's really what I enjoyed about that first book was it didn't it really opened its uh, doors to understanding things like the alkaline diet, which I've, you know, criticized forever. Um, it's insane to even think that such a thing can work. And when they talked about, you know, that years ago there was a sports magazine or something, a bicycle magazine or whatever I was reading, where they had this whole thing about the alkaline diet and then a gigantic centerfold for alkaline water. <laughs> and I thought, okay, the advertisers are, are buying a little, little something here, but, how can you know it made zero sense when you understand the ideas of chemistry and the ph of the stomach and buffering and all the concepts that are there yeah. and the neat part was was when i read your book and i realized its roots and saw where it started and and it really gave it a really nice like the alkaline ash diet that whole thing really gave a great overlay to understanding that better and uh, so so really highly recommend the first book but the second book the truth about fat is what I really hope to drill down on here today. And it really starts out with the idea that we're uh, in an uh, a obesity epidemic, but also the other chronic health conditions associated with excess weight. And so can you give us a synopsis really of that stepping off point? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the second book is quite different, I suppose, in that it's not necessarily attacking um, you know, various specific fad diets and real pseudoscientific beliefs. But it, it's about the, it's a sort of critical assessment of, of the way we talk about um, obesity and the way we talk about, you know, body weight and the way we talk about health and the relationships to health and, and really sort of critically assessing everything in that, in that um, arena and particularly pulling apart the various people who are making a lot of money, to be honest, um, selling us simple solutions to what are really complex systemic issues. 
Um, and that's the, you know, the heart of it is looking at every single person who's, who's proposing that, you know, obesity, um, sort of health inequalities are simple things with simple solutions because they're not. I think we all sort of know that they're, they're deeply complex systemic issues. But so many people are saying it's just simple. It's just the microbiome or it's just our genes or it's just because we don't exercise or it's just because of this and that. And saying, and so the solution is simple. And the solution is not simple. It's a complex systemic um, issue. And, and we also have a lot of misinformation and a lot of misunderstandings about the obesity epidemic in general. I don't even like that. I tried to put that, put that term epidemic in inverted commas because I personally think it's something different. But, you know, it's an explanation of all of that, which is obviously such a massive preoccupation that we all have. Um, and I wanted to unpack it and understand, you know, the real um, misunderstandings that, that exist and the people who are exploiting those misunderstandings and using it, using that to, to sort of um, make money. And that includes, you know, individuals, but it also includes businesses it also includes the diet industry it also includes you know large food companies who sell us health in a box or sell us solutions simple solutions again to complex problems so it was really you know it, it explores lots of areas it, it's quite a you know wide 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 ranging book um and hopefully comes to some sort of sensible conclusion somewhere near the end well what what in your uh in your analysis what is the role of carbohydrates in this? And you know, so many people have framed these no-carb, low-carb diets. You know, how much um, reality is there? Because we know from biology that carbohydrates are the preferred energy source of the cell. And how does that really play into uh, issues like, um, you know, me- metabolic syndrome, et cetera? You know, when we have a uh, maybe leaning a little high on the carbohydrates from day to day. Um, okay. I mean, that's, it's, it's very difficult. Um, you know, c- carbohydrates are, it's common practice to demonize carbohydrates and it's become more and more common in the last few years. I, you know, you just look at the evidence and I, there's an extensive section in the book on fats and carbohydrates. You look at the evidence and the fact that sort of there's a, there's a single lone cause for, or, or, or role for carbohydrates is, is pretty ridiculous. I mean, it's based on misinterpretation of science, and it's based on a science which is spread very much by, you know, the diet industry, so the Atkins diet and and various, many, many people supporting those sort of diets and making a lot of money selling those sort of diets. Because certainly, if you cut all carbohydrates out of your diet, then you'll probably enter into a more restricted eating pattern, then you'll probably lose some weight. And there's good evidence to say that it might be a, a, a potential strategy for some people to do that. But to say there's some specific reason why carbohydrates are causing metabolic harm, they're, they're, there's just no good evidence to support that. Um, and, and I think I think there's an inherent problem with the way we like to think about food, which is that when it comes to diet and health, we like to demonize sing, single ingredients. Like we like to demonize sugar. We like to demonize carbohydrates. We like to demonize fat. We like to demonize satura- saturated fat. And, and in my opinion, all those things are uh, a flawed ways of approaching this, this, this issue. So, you know, because it's not about that. It's about the food that people eat and the way people consume food and the relationship they have with food and their, you know, the relationship they have with their bodies and the relationship they have with their health. Um, and so to try and sort of sing it down, it's just generally people trying to sell simple solutions to complex problems, like I said. And, and this idea that it's all about carbohydrates, it's just as flawed as the idea that it was all about fat. And it's just as flawed as the idea that it's all about exercise. You know, it's, these are these are complex things and we have to kind of look at the whole rather than focusing on on individual things. 
Well, the part of this that really gives me pause, and you talk about this being a larger systemic multifaceted issue, and I'm with you 100%, but the thing that people leave out all the time is genetics. And when you look at the diversity of, of just you know, the way we look and the way we think and everything about us. Uh, we also have different ways of metabolizing different parts of chemistry or, or in, and well, metabolizing or building up different t- kinds of chemistry. We can s- to see that in different people and the way we carry fat, carry weight in different places, whatever. And I know what works for me. And for me, and I, I don't like a lot of carbohydrates. They wear me out and I do put on extra pounds. When I have a tend to have more carbohydrates than what I'm associating with higher blood sugar, but that works for me. And when we start to apply what works for me to a population, it doesn't necessarily hold. And I think that's what we see a lot in this issues around discussions of food and fat. And uh, is in, how much do you think that that one size fits all, that one common solution? It really is the cornerstone of most of this stuff, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, <clears throat> I, I couldn't, um, I couldn't agree with that more. You know, we, we are incredibly genetically diverse. You know, we, we respond to food in different ways, and it, you know, people have this tendency to look at their diet and what they do, and 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 think if it worked for me, that's applicable to the rest of the population. Despite the fact that the rest of the population are genetically different, they're socially different. You know, they lead completely different lives. Um, you know, have completely different needs and completely different values. And, and you, you know, you're trying to apply the same thing to everyone is is obviously ridiculous. And, you know, and body weight itself, you know, how much fat we, have, we, we store is incredibly highly genetically determined. When we have enough food to eat, then, you know, it's thought to be around about seven, your body weight is thought to be around about 70% heritable, which is the same roughly as, as your height. Um, but we have this idea that we must make everyone conform to be exactly the same shape and size. And if anyone's, you know, uh, the wrong the wrong shape and size, they have to sort of starve themselves back into being a a a, a sort of um, you know a, a more what's considered a more ideal shape and size. And that is, you know, not only uh, for many people fighting against their genetics, but it also is quite problematic because it can put people into a very difficult relationship with the food they eat and a very difficult relationship with their bodies. Um, and, you know, I think all, you know, this uh, trying to apply a one-size-fits-all, that we all have to eat the same way and we all have to look the same way and be the same shape and size, you know, is, is you know, clearly ridiculous, but that's what the entire diet industry seems to be founded upon. And I think it also is ignorant to a couple other simple basics of biology. And uh, one of the concepts that you touch on is kind of this set point, you know, this place where your body wants to get with respect to the amount of weight that it carries or the amount of fat that it carries. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, Yeah, I mean, that's something that's been known for quite a considerable amount of time. You know, back to sort of Ankle Keys' starvation experiments in the 1940s, you know, people were, he made a group of people lose a lot of weight and it had a massive impact on them for all sorts of aspects of their physiology and their psychology and was incredibly, you know, would never be repeated again because it's so harmful, even though it was just a slightly restricted diet for about six, about six months. Um, and they lost quite a considerable amount of their weight. But when they were refed, people, people got back to the weight they were at before. We kind of have a natural 
po- natural point that our weight tends to reach. That might increase a little bit every year for some people. Um, you know, it might sort of change slightly and you might have a, I think most people are more comfortable with this idea of sort of a settling point roughly within a few key, a few kilos or a few pounds either way. So if you go above that, your body would kind of like, and when you, when you go outside that range, your body enacts lots of processes in order to bring you back into that range in terms of the amount of fat it has in storage. So, you know, and these processes, which are, you control it, uh, mostly hormonal, and they're very well known. They're quite recent, actually. You know, when I was studying biochemistry, um, 20 or so years ago, most of this stuff hadn't, well, no, 30 or so years ago, most of this stuff hadn't really been, been discovered. Um, but now we have this knowledge of, of various hormones like leptin, which control, sort of is controlled by the amount of fat you have in storage and sort of ghrelin and various other hormonal systems, which keep us in very tight regulation, keeps our weight, weight very tightly regulated because, you know, most of us, our weight doesn't change that much day to day, week to week. It usually changes over a period of years if it changes. Um, and, and that's just by a very different, very small difference in the amount of calories between the amount of calories you eat and the amount of calories you burn. You know, and it's ridiculous to think that's controlled somehow by willpower. Most of it is controlled by homeostatic mechanisms in the body, which keep us in, in, in a particular weight. But we kind of have this idea when it comes to weight that um, it's very much part in 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 sort of a control by our willpower you know that we 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 sort of will ourselves to be a certain way and that's def- that's really not true the um the, you know one of the leading scientists in the world who discovered the hormone leptin um jeffrey freeman he he told me when i was writing the book he told me you know, when he's lecturing on this he describes you know, weight as being quite quite simply the same uh, sort of our desire to eat when we haven't, uh, when we're losing weight, if we're hungry, our desire to eat is very much the same as our desire to breathe. You can fight it for a certain amount of time, and you can control it to an extent, but eventually, you know, your hormones, and it's governed by very much the same parts of the brain, your hormones will override that, and you will eat, um, you know, just as you will eventually breathe. You, it's sort of in your control, but, you know, you, it will eventually happen. You will have to gasp for breath. People will eventually eat. It just seems like it's within our willpower because it um, happens over a much longer period of time than our, our desire to breathe or, or our desire to drink. All these processes are very, very tightly controlled by our, our um, hypothalamus, so the part of the brain which controls those sort of basic instincts. I totally get that. And for me, you know, it's kind of funny. I, I I don't know if you'd call it willpower, but for me, it's the lack of wanting to buy new clothes that keep me in a central <laughs> weight. It's totally true. Like I can tell when I go for, you know, go up for uh, Christmas to my folks house or something. And, you know, I go to Chicago and I eat a deep dish pizza and then I eat five Italian beefs and hot dogs and all that stuff that, that I totally love that I never get. And so I have to eat all of it inside you know, a few days time. And I can come back from, uh, from that wing, you know, another, you know, five kilos more in, or, you know, 10 pounds more, no problem. And, uh, and, but then I can tell because my clothes fit weird. And then within, then I just, it kind of is like a tying a string around your finger, um, that I basically then start to think twice about, well, do I really need to have, you know, three beers tonight or do I really need to eat, uh, you know, some ice cream with that, you know, and I end up getting back down to my set point, which is about two or four pounds. And that's about where I always, always end up. And if I lose weight from too much exercise or I'm, you know, really training hard back when I was, you know, running a ton and doing other exercise, I, I would get down to maybe 189, 190. But then as soon as I would, um, 
uh, kind of loosen the training a touch, I'd get right back up to my normal weight. And I really do believe that there is a part, a point where I am meant to be genetically. And, and I don't know that there's a sense in fighting that. But yeah, what about all the, the evidence, all the evidence supports that, you know, it's not, you know, it's not something the diet industry supports because that, that would sort of mess with their business model. But all the evidence supports that that is pretty much the case. And it gets ridiculous because you'll get someone going into the doctors and, and, and they'll have, you know, a BMI of what, 35, 40. Um, and their doctor will say, you you have to get your BMI down to 25 because that's what you need to do. But that's that's kind of a ridiculous question to have, a conversation to have with a lot of people because that's just an unachievable goal. You know, the, the goal should be to help people at the weight they are, improve their health. You know, surely that should be the goal that all sort of health professionals are working towards. But this this narrative about weight has become about sort of maintaining an ideal or a perfect weight that's the same for everybody has become so dominant that often the conversations um, with medical professionals are like, you know, here's this unachievable goal that you have to get to. And if you don't, then you won't be healthy. Rather than saying, Here's how you are now. What can you do to improve your health? You know, exercise would be one thing. Eating a better quality diet would be another. Stopping smoking, not drinking as much. You know, actually, a few of those things that you've mentioned. That's they're good ways to improve your health. They might not improve your weight. They probably, you know, some evidence exercise might move your set point down a little bit. But you know, you might it might not. Um, you might be willing to put weight on when you exercise. You might want to put muscle mass on. That would be a good thing for your health. But you know, because of this obsession we have with weight, we get to some pretty strange places when it comes to health. People basically doing quite unhealthy behaviours in order to lose weight because they think that's what defines them as a sort of healthy person. You know, so people taking diet pills and people, even people smoking you know, in order to lose weight. So you know, we, we have this obsession with it. We have this obsession with normalising everybody's body to the same, whereas I think we should probably be just be worrying about you know, improving people's health. No, very good. So we're talking with Anthony Warner. He's the author of The Truth About Fat and also the book, The Angry Chef, um, and also the writer of the blog, One Angry Chef, and also a column. What, what's your column called in, uh, in the Times? Um, it was the Angry Chef column in the Times when, it, when it's in there, yeah. Okay. In, in a food column. Yeah, I haven't, uh, I haven't had a chance to read that because I don't read the Times, but, uh, but, uh, certainly that was another credit, uh, to you there. So we're on the Talking Biotech Podcast and we'll be back in just a moment. Hey everyone, this is Nick Syke from No Ideas Media. If you listen to this podcast, you're probably an awesome person who's probably found themselves in a debate or two about the validity of genetic engineering and its use in food production. You may have even noticed the same problem I've been picking up on. There's lots of good information out there about genetic engineering, but very few people who need to see it are exposed to it. Well, I'm making videos that lay people like myself can actually understand and digest. I'm a filmmaker, so this is my contribution to science communication. They are the perfect thing to post on the wall of that friend you have. You know, that person who just can't seem to grasp the awesomeness of GE crops, who maybe gets hung up on things like chemicals or Monsanto or whatever. The videos I make cover a wide variety of topics, and you can watch them by searching No Ideas Media, remember that's no as in knowledge, on Facebook or YouTube. The videos will likely cover what you already know, but the point is, we gotta share them with people who don't know. The mission at No Ideas Media is to be pragmatic, not dramatic. So help us spread the right information about genetic engineering. Thanks a lot.
And we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast today talking with Anthony Warner, who you may know as the Angry Chef, uh, who's written the book The Truth About Fat. And it's a, it's a good book that really follows on the heels of one of my favorite books. Um, the uh, first book was just The Angry Chef, right? That was the title. Yeah, yeah, it's got a subtitle: "Bad Science and the Truth About Healthy Eating." There you go. Okay, and and I it, yeah, and I and I love the <laughs> the reviews that were the poll quotes of people who read the book ahead of time were pretty good. So that would so <laughs> and that one's really worth worth it. And the nice the, the thing about the first book and the second book is the first book I remember busting out laughing like all the time. I mean, it was really really well written and a lot of fun to read. The second one is a little different in that it's much more straightforward science, and it it doesn't necessarily go um, go for the jugular as much as, as the first book, but is much more um, uh, grounded in much more of a scientific style. And was that really the goal of the second one, to differentiate it from just that kind of snarky first one? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess, I, you know, it was much, it's much more of a science book because there was a lot more science to cover. You know, I was just debunking bad science um, in, in the first book to an extent. And that's, you know, that's can be done in a certain way but you know really i wanted to get to the heart of a lot of our misunderstandings about science and really um communicating some of the science of of weight gain which is not generally talked about because it doesn't fit with a sort of commercially driven narrative um and just sort of bring that to life a bit more because i think there's, there's a lot of stuff that you know a huge amount of research which is very valuable which has been done but um, is isn't necessarily communicated all the time. So it was, yeah, it is. It is much more of a science book than than, than the previous one. Um, but yeah, I hope, I hope there's a few few jokes in there still. I, I still like to try and make people laugh. But, and I also, you know, it, there are, these are serious issues, and I often you know, have quite sort of polemic arguments and, and and get a bit carried away sometimes. I think. <laughs> yeah, sorry for the chicken in the background. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Okay, but, but well, let's talk a little bit about the the science in this. And lately, the hot area of science, or maybe hot or confusing, is the idea of the microbiome. And many people have said, well, the microbiome is, you know, and we've heard the microbiome be uh, considered everything from just a bunch of bacteria that that like to live inside of us to something that is the uh, ultimate steering force of all physiology and thought. <laughs> and so somewhere in between, there's probably some reality. And so what say you about the microbiome? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's obviously the, um, the hot area of, of um, well, all sorts of science, especially nutrition science at the moment. And it's, it's, um, you know, it is an important thing. It's, it's a fascinating thing. Um, but is, you know, when you have those sort of hot areas of science, they are things that get, misinterpreted they're things that get um, misused and they're things that people will exploit for financial gain there's plenty of people trying to persuade me um to send off samples to have my microbiome tested at the moment i'm not sure what what they're what what i'm I'm expecting i'm going to find out about um from that because you know i think the thing about microbiome and especially regards to obesity which i did most of my my sort of research for the book and but also generally is you know, people need to understand that there is there are correlations between the microbiome and and various different conditions and various different um, various different things. But you know, those are correlations, and we don't know the direction of causality always, and, and sometimes that's very difficult to define. So you know, there there are there's some evidence that certain you know um, aspects of the microbiome, certain you know certain bacteria 
types of bacteria or, or combinations of bacteria or, or sort of diversity of different types of bacteria have an association with, say, obesity or, say, type 2 diabetes or, or various conditions. But we just don't know enough about the direction of causality. And, you know, because because the confounder is always diet. You know, if you eat a diet with lots of fiber and lots of vegetables, that's generally a pretty good diet, which is good for lots of different health outcomes. That's also a pretty good diet for having a diverse microbiome. So, you know, you've got a big confounder there with diet. And, and the, the odds are that there's this, there's multi-way relationships and it's quite complex. But w- with microbiome, people are kind of saying, um, you know, this is this is the answer. This is this is the thing that that's really sort of defining why people are, are gaining weight or why people are having why people develop certain conditions. But actually, it, it, it's often more likely that that it's a it's a factor that that is is related to you know sort of diet and, and other health conditions and is affected by diet and other health conditions. So you know, science people at the cutting edge of this science don't fully understand the direction of causality when it comes to microbiome and you know there's certainly no known microbiome um that is 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 correlated to obesity you can't say this is an obesogenic microbiome um you know that that just there's not enough research to actually say that but there's loads and loads of people um sort of selling you know diets which are going to change your microbiome and diet you know and, and it's just you know it's just we just don't know enough we're just stepping ahead of the science and, and saying you know this this is this is, this is the cause of all things and, and this is the but, but actually we, we just don't know enough and the people at the very cutting edge of this science don't know enough but there's so many people trying to sell us sell us diets based on you know how they're going to manipulate your microbiome and it's that's just ridiculous i think we should eat lots of fiber and that's a good thing you know and that, that's a good thing for feeding your microbiome um and it's a good thing for general health but you know to sort of break it down and, and, and go into it so tightly and say this is the you know, this microbiome issue is causing this and that. We just don't know enough yet. And I wish that people would just kind of sort of step back and say, you, know, you don't have to have this sort of uh, scientific explanation for eating lots of vegetables. Just just do that because I think we kind of know that's a good thing. Yeah, the most compelling work I've seen on microbiome have been associations with specific microbiome constituents and the blood and the response blood glucose response to carbohydrate. And that's been kind of compelling work out of Israel where they actually do show that there's certain people who, you know, are overweight and they look like they're a mess and you would guess that they would be the ones with the, uh, you know, sporting type 2 diabetes and metabolic syndrome, yet they metabolize glucose perfectly. No problem. You can give them anything and they, and their blood, their glucose tolerance test matches that of anybody else, uh, of someone who's in, you know, perfect, um, uh, insulin uh, regulatory uh, areas. And some of that does correlate very tightly with microbiome. And uh, there's companies there that actually can do some pretty tight uh, tests to give you ideas about, you know, whether or not you're in those classes. The funny part is, though, is I think you know whether or not you can, you can uh, metabolize glucose by whether or not you're diabetic or not. And so in a way, it kind of chases its tail. But, um, you know, why it's compelling, I think there's a lot more that needs to be done, as you say. But what, what's going on? Um, in your book, there was an interesting part about Amsterdam. And so what was the major thrust of the, the, the discussion of the food there and how that works, or diets work, especially with respect to children? 
Yeah, um, you know, I, I mean, as I said before, I believe, um, and I don't think it's that controversial to be honest, that um, you know, obesity um, and and health inequalities are complex systemic issues which need addressing at a system level rather than you know some some sort of very specific top down in, in intervention. And um, but you know, those sort of uh, system level interventions are quite you know they, they feel a bit woolly sometimes. They also feel a bit like. Um, you know, sometimes the, the criticism of system level interventions is, you know, that, that it involves addressing everything at once and it, it allows big companies to say, oh, well, it's not our fault. It's a system problem, you know, and that, that's, that's the criticism. And I understand that criticism. Um, but, you know, there are occasional examples of good system level interventions. And one of the best ones is the Amsterdam um, Childhood Obesity Project, um, which which happened, um, you know, over the last over the last few years. Um, basically took a, a strong act of political leadership um, to, to sort of stand back and say, we want to address childhood obesity. We're going to do it at a system level. So what we're going to do, instead of sort of top-down interventions like we're going to do a, you know, put a tax on people or we're going to have a big public information campaign, what what they did first, because they considered this the most important thing, was to address societal inequalities, which were you know really the drivers of health inequalities. Um and you know, so looked worked with people at a community level, and we've sort of um, brought together all the all the people across um, Amsterdam who are working to help communities, and and sort of gave them extra resources sometimes, but also just brought things together to say everything we're doing to help children in Amsterdam is going to be focused on helping them and live healthier lifestyles. Um, and it's going to be focused on taking the people in the most deprived and the most vulnerable areas and giving them the most help and helping them you know, have slightly better lives. So making healthier decisions, making decisions to perhaps do some exercise or perhaps eat a better quality diet actually makes sense. And also instead of like really um, aggressive um, prohibition of, of, of unhealthy things, what they did was make sure that the landscape um, in which people were making food decisions was completely um, either completely equal or weighted towards a healthier decision. So instead of sort of banning vending machines selling Coca-Cola, they would probably allow the vending machines to be there, but make sure that there was always healthier options, that it was always tap water available free or not tap water, drinking water available free um, and helps people who perhaps were more vulnerable or, or more prone to bad decision makings, empowered them to make better decisions for their health and gave them lives where those decisions made sense. And so that sounds like sort of a complex thing to do, and it is a complex thing to do. It requires, you know, it required a massive coordination of all the existing social care and healthcare and education infrastructure in the city and bringing that all together with a single goal of helping address childhood obesity. But it's probably the one really good example of an intervention at that sort of level, which has actually worked really well because it's not only brought down levels of childhood obesity in Amsterdam, it's also reduced the inequality between, um, you know, between levels along socioeconomic grounds. So in most developed countries these days, uh, lower socioeconomic groups tend to be more have a higher prevalence of obesity, especially childhood obesity. It's less over men. It's mostly women and, and children who seem to, seem to be more vulnerable in lower socioeconomic groups. Um, and in Amsterdam, that inequality has been reduced, and it's probably the only place in the world where that inequality has been reduced. This is a comp- you know, it's an incredibly complex thing. It's incredibly hard to do, but that's what it takes to actually make successful interventions. Well, that's one side of that scale, right? You can have some larger social interventions to try to 
bring about uh, elements of systemic change. But let's go all the way to the other end of that spectrum. <laughs> you know, I can say that I was very fortunate to grow up in a house with a mother who was a fantastic cook, who from the time I was a little kid was helping to prepare meals and learning about how to um, assemble uh, something to eat for the family or cook a dish, not from a cookbook, but from just kind of understanding the ratios and what the different things do inside of a dish. And have people really lost or are we losing the ability to simply cook from scratch? Um, I, I think I think there's some evidence that that might be happening. Um, but but I also think sometimes you know you, you have to accept a bit of that, that to an extent because that goes with po- a lot of positive societal changes. It goes with the changing role of women in society. It goes with you know more people entering the workplace, and it goes with you know a, a lot of positive things. And we maybe lose some of the skills of the past. But what we really need to do instead of just sort of um, imagining that we we, we desperately need everybody to return to the past we need to understand that for a lot of people that spending hours cooking in the kitchen however pleasurable it might be and however much you know it's something that i definitely enjoy myself it's just not possible for everybody in in society we have now and and you know it probably will not be for you know possible again in the society so we need to find ways of helping people to lead better lives and lead healthier lives within that infrastructure and you know for some people it's never been possible you know for some people who have um you know sort of complex needs and for some people who have disabilities and for some people who have you know just sort of um various different means of why they why they can't cook that's never been possible and what we have now is an environment where you know, that's not necessarily always leading to food insecurity. You know, we have much better food security than we used to, um, for, for especially for vulnerable people. Um, and, you know, we, we shouldn't forget that that sort of progress is important. Uh, you know, I, I love cooking, and I think it would be great if we could get loads of people back cooking. But I, you have to understand that that's not necessarily possible for everybody, and we just have to try and find ways of helping people to lead a healthier life within that sort of modern societal infrastructure and you know sometimes that's going to be decisions which don't always um sort of play well with certain types of um you know certain types of social commenters who 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 want us to you know believe that this sort of um artisanal return to turn to the earth and return to nature and turn to the way things used to be um is the only way we we, we should be going forward you know there, there has been progress and a lot of that progress has been positive and a lot of that has depended on on food food system infrastructure changes um and we just need to find a way to live better within that rather than thinking we should return to the past well that's when we uh when you talk about the larger social you know framework of this you know mm-hmm. I, i'm here in the american south and i'm in a uh, you know my I work in a, in a city that has substantial infrastructure. You can go to a convenience store on the corner and you have um, more choices than you do at the grocery store, which is out where I live out in a rural area. You know, you, you have a, uh, a large amount, at least in the States and in some areas where there really is a question of uh, food deserts. And in the 
poor areas of the South, even rural areas, not even talking to cities, you don't necessarily have access to fresh fruits and vegetables um, at any uh, appreciable level. You have the things that survive post-harvest well, so things like apples, and you can get that. But, you know, things even like bananas or lettuce are, are can be kind of rare. And in the cities, you even see this. So, uh, especially, you know, where you, you may have a considerable population that is um, – isolated from the option of even having fresh fruits and vegetables to work from. And when you look at the correlations and you look at where obesity is rampant, it tends to fit very well with these areas where there just isn't access to food choice. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, I think that's much, I mean, it's actually much more of a problem in the U S and food deserts, deserts have been sort of proposed as one of the, one of the big causes of obesity. I think the U S is quite specific in that in the UK, it's slightly different um, because we don't necessarily have the, 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 the largest, larger spaces, um, you know, in, in societies generally not sort of as geographically um, sort of disparate, but um you know, yeah, it can, it can, these are, there are often those sort of systemic issues which, which, which make it very difficult for people to eat well. Um, I would probably argue that that, you know, certainly where I live and, and, and it's, that's certainly improved over the past 30 or 40 years rather than got worse because, you know, when I was growing up, we had, you know, far less access to a far smaller variety of, of fruits and vegetables and fresh meat and fresh fish and all those sort of things. We have much better access to food now um, than we did. But, you know, there are certainly areas where access is very difficult. How much of that is is caused by, um, you know, the actual physical infrastructure and how much is that caused by, you know, people leading difficult lives not having the demand for those things, I'm not sure. But I don't think there's enough focus when it comes to interventions um, uh, you know, from a government level. There's not enough focus on on sort of promoting people to to, um, to to sell fruits and vegetables and offer offer better better choice for people. You know, for instance, in the UK, I know I don't know how it is in the US, but in the UK, um, the rates the, the the tax you pay on a business um, are exactly the same if you're opening like a, a, a takeaway. Um, as they are if you're opening a fruit and vegetable shop. And that seems ridiculous, really, doesn't it? You know, but there's no, the people, are, you look at one business is going to be more profitable um, and it's going to have better demand. But, you know, you, you can think how you could easily manufacture incentives for people to open businesses selling healthy food. But there's so little focus on that because the focus tends to be on, on sort of, um, you know, uh, sort of going for the, the people involved and looking at individuals and telling them they need to make better choices rather than helping create an infrastructure where they can make better choices and better choices make sense. Well, tell me a little bit more about food addiction and how this plays a role in uh, chronic obesity. Yeah, um, you know, it, it's, it's something that, um, I, you know, I, talk about, I talked earlier about um, how different um, individual nutrients aren't necessarily, it's not a very good idea to focus on individual nutrients like fat or like sugar or like like carbs um but uh sometimes that leads people to say well it's about food and basically our environment now has lots of foods which are addictive they're like addictive drugs and people can't stop eating them and that you know that focus will always be pointed at you know uh, industrially produced food like chocolate they say these things are addictive like drugs you know people people just can't help themselves um and they have no willpower around them and and that's kind of a common narrative which i think is pretty much accepted by a lot of people that you know we have these addictive foods um i you know I, i'm i'm 
very much i'm quite cynical about that if i'm honest i don't think there's much evidence that really supports food there's not a single substance or a single no people talk about sugar a lot of the time that that's not an addictive substance otherwise people would just end up eating sugar out of a out of a bag you know there's no individual ingredient which is is addictive but some people have a particularly if they have a particularly emotive um, connection to certain foods like say um you know so it could be fried chicken or it could be pizza or it could be chocolate or it could be um you know any number of things donuts or something they might have that might have a particular emotional resonance for them and sometimes their desire to eat that often just sort of fill some sort of emotional hole can sort of trump their appetite and they will develop a sort of quasi addictive relationship with food um sometimes that results in in binge eating disorder um which is you know an eating disorder and we shouldn't think of that as a food addiction that's you know it's an eating disorder which is a sign of more fundamental problems people have um but you know that that can develop almost addiction like behavior around around certain foods and and cause and, and cause sort of binge eating you know, that, that, this is not a sign of a particularly uh, addictive food environment this is a sign of people who are suffering from sort of severe emotional problems and you know binge eating disorder is linked to sort of childhood um trauma and, and childhood abuse and and all sorts of other other sort of serious um problems that people are facing um but and and people might think it's quite unusual quite rare and it is reasonably unusual reasonably rare but in the most obese people in in people who like say the population of people uh, who are going into bariatric surgery in the uk well over half probably about 60 percent are suffering from binge eating disorder which is a serious eating disorder and so what we do to those people is just tell them it's all about their willpower and tell them they're just weak willed and they cut their often often you see them described as being disgusting or a shame on society when these are people suffering from serious sort of um, trauma and abuse and uh, men- mental illness you know we just have so little compassion for that we just have so little sympathy for it i think um and i you know just i just more than anything in the book i kind of appeal to people to just have a bit more compassion and understanding that different people are going through different problems and we shouldn't be judging them for their for, for their their size and their, their shape we should be judging them as, as you know people human people going through very human problems and trying to address those problems rather than just saying oh it's simple you should have just eaten less yeah, it's kind of funny because if you uh look at eating disorders in the other direction, like anorexia or bulimia, it seems like there is a lot of compassion for that and a lot of understanding that it is part of a spectrum of of mental health or previous trauma or there's other components that require therapy and therapeutic interventions, uh, you know, mental health therapy. And yet, you know, but and, and that seems to be the case. Whereas people who are suffering in the other direction, we tend to either vilify or, or somehow compartmentalize and just say, well, you know, take the pie out of your mouth. You know, it's really, it, it, isn't that an interesting dichotomy that we think of it in two different ways? I think, I think it's very interesting. Um, but I, what I would also say is, yeah, that is not necessarily always been the case. I would say that eating disorders, anorexia and bulimia, they used to be, you know, in my memory, certainly, it used to be a lot of people used to say, oh, it's just silly girls who are just too vain and want to lose some weight and just not fundamentally not understanding that it was a, a serious and potentially fatal me- mental illness. Um, they were, you know, people were vilified in the past, but we have a better understanding of that now. But with, you know, with um, sort of weight gain and obesity, 
we just don't have that understanding yet because it's so ingrained within society that this is a this is a problem of willpower and it's a problem of people's willpower breaking down and they just need to just need to be better they just need to be you know sort of improve um their their sort of um, ability to control themselves um but it, you know it's obviously not that but we have this we still have that ingrained and I, but i think your your example means to me says that actually there is capacity to change there is capacity for us to get better at this uh, and help actually work on helping people but it just takes well, that's a really great point to go out on and uh, what's next on your radar and what, what's the next project <laughs> uh, well you like this one um, my next project is um, i'm certainly doing a lot of writing and hoping to work towards another book which is going to be about the sustainability of food supply and the environmental impact of food and also just again looking at how that's misused and misunderstood and how that's used to sell stuff to people and you know the things that we generally get wrong about that but also you know without without trying to hide that it's a, there, there are very serious issues that need addressing i just want to look at look at the science and, and, and realize how people are manipulating it to sell stuff through no that's an that's an excellent topic and something near and dear to my heart for sure um if people want to know more about you or read your work or follow you on social media where do they look um, well, my, my, my biggest um, social media presence is probably on Twitter, where I am um, where I am the Angry Chef. I'm one angry chef. Um, and I have my blog, which is the Angry Chef blog, um, where I, ha- I tend to sort of, uh, write, uh, contribute regularly to, um, to that and to various different publications I write for in the UK and internationally. Uh, and, of course, you can buy both my books, um, which is The Angry Chef and The Truth About That. Yeah, very good and highly recommended. Uh, you know, the, both of them are, are serve a very important purpose. I've enjoyed both of them. Um, the first one, you know, just just great for debunking. The second one for a scientific discussion of these multifaceted problems associated with fat and its consequences. So, thank you so much for joining me, Anthony. Um, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. As usual, uh, do a review on iTunes or your place where you consume media. They make the podcast look a little more attractive to the casual consumer who's just looking for some new content. And uh, our reviews are always really nice and really appreciated. So thank you very much for that. And we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to TalkingBiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.